It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Last month, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem signed a bill that bans transgender women and girls in the state's schools and universities from participating in school sports leagues that match their gender identity. Now we will ensure that we have fairness and a level playing field for female athletes here in the state of South Dakota at the K-12 level and at the university level. Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered the state's Department of Family Service to investigate gender-affirming care for minors as child abuse, an order that's been put on hold by a judge. Conservative lawmakers across the country have introduced measures that target trans and non-binary youth from their right to play sports to their right to get gender-affirming care or even use the bathroom. Here's transgender activist Eden Rose Torres. The people that have never had to think about their gender identity, that is such a privilege because those of us that have had to think about it, the reason is, is because we don't fit in to the two boxes that society has given us, male or female. The American Civil Liberties Union is taking the lead in many of these cases, fighting for transgender rights. And one lawyer is leading the ACLU's fight, Chase Stangio. Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson did a profile on Stangio. Eric, to put Stangio's work in context, it seems like we're hearing a lot more about cases where transgender rights are increasingly under attack. That's true. There are dozens of bills that have been proposed in state houses around the country just this year, at least a couple dozen that seek to restrict essentially activities for trans youth, whether it's related to playing in sports or various health care measures, gender-affirming health care measures happening kind of all across the country. You know, clearly it's an issue that uh, conservatives and Republicans have jumped on right now. So it's similar to the way we've seen a a lot of other similar bills back in the day against uh, same-sex marriage and things like that. So it's just seems to be what they're focusing on right now. So tell us about Chase Strangio, an ACLU lawyer. Yeah, so I noticed that uh, in a lot of these cases that the ACLU had been filing 
challenging some of these laws that Chase Strangio's name was coming up. Um, he has been at the ACLU for several years. He oversees the ACLU's legal response to trans issues. That doesn't mean he's working on every single case or arguing in court in all of them, but he's overseeing broadly what is going on. And he is also personally working on several of those cases as well in court. And protecting trans rights is personal for him? Yeah, he he came out as trans in law school. He told me about, um, you know, the long process that he went through before, you know, coming to this realization and decided that uh, trans rights were something that he needed to focus on for his career. So uh, he went to law school, eventually came out, worked at a, a few organizations that focus on LGBTQ rights, and then found himself uh, at the ACLU. And he lives in New York in Queens. He's 39. He is co-parenting a, a nine-year-old and has been working from home during the pandemic <laughs> and, and fighting this legal battle at the same time. Yeah, so he's been leading the charge against an order from the governor of Texas, which directed the state agency to investigate parents or doctors who provide gender-affirming care for minors. And this has become a huge issue. And did he argue it there? How much has he worked on that? He didn't do the arguments because they had the ACLU of Texas had a lawyer there in court. And we were able to watch that that hearing over Zoom on Friday when the decision uh, was handed down, granting the injunction against that rule that you just mentioned, blocking the state from enforcing that rule while this litigation proceeds. So while he was not there in court, he is broadly overseeing uh, the ACLU's legal response to it. And as you said, this is a huge, uh, sort of a huge deal. There have been a lot of these anti-trans bills that are being challenged. Uh, You know, Chase is working on one case in Idaho, challenging that state's law, banning girls and women from school sports if they're trans. And uh, another case in Arkansas that bans gender-affirming care uh, for minors. So he's working on that case as well. But I think what really made this Texas rule, well, it's not even a law, by the way, it's just um, the Governor Greg Abbott issued a, a, a directive ordering the state agencies to interpret existing law in such a way that uh, the gender affirming care is child abuse. So it wasn't even a new law. It's just that it was a directive, but it got a lot of it, uh, attention across the country because it had a new element where it's basically telling the state to investigate families for child abuse. So it's not just trying to ban gender-affirming care. It's saying investigate families for child abuse if they if they look into it or try it. He told you that besides the record number of bills being introduced and passing, the breadth of the cruelty keeps increasing. I think that what he was getting at there is that when they started to target the children is when he really thought that it was getting so cruel because, um, you know, obviously the folks on the other side of the argument here are saying that they're the ones protecting children, that they're doing this to help children. But that's just not how the ACLU sees it. Uh, They see that this gender-affirming care is something that a lot of people don't know about, and so it's easy to spread misinformation about it and make it sound scary, I think is is the way that uh, Chase describes the effort to undermine it. But his point is that there are just some some kids who have gender dysphoria. It's a you know a serious uh, psychological issue that they can have if they really strongly identify with 
a different gender than what they physically appear to be. So it's not like a decision that's made lightly whether or not to have this gender-affirming care like puberty blockers or taking um, testosterone or hormones. It's something that you know is very carefully mapped out with psychologists and doctors and parents, and that it's not something that every trans minor does anyway. It's just in some cases, it's a very rare occurrence and that these kids really need this help, Strangio says, and for the state to try to stop it and demonize their parents for trying to help their kids. I think that's what he was getting at and saying it was just so cruel. And there seem to be a lot of bills lately or laws that try to ban transgender girls or women from playing on female sports teams. Have any of those cases gotten past the initial stages? Yeah, the the state of Idaho was the first to pass a law like this, and uh, Chase went to court there on behalf of a few trans female plaintiffs, and uh, the ACLU did win at a, a preliminary injunction blocking that law from taking effect during the case. Right now, that um, you know, COVID has kind of slowed down a lot of these lawsuits, but it's now on appeal because the state is arguing that the plaintiff no longer has standing in the case because she took a year off from Boise State University after she failed to make the cross-country team. So she's back at the university, but the state is trying to scrap the case on, on those grounds. So that's tied up in court uh, on appeal. Uh, there's another case in Connecticut uh, where two non-trans female athletes, uh, cisgender athletes, sued to challenge the state's inclusive policy for trans girls and, and women, saying that they would have an unfair advantage over non-trans athletes. So that case was thrown out, and they appealed, and so the Second Circuit will um, eventually hold arguments on that. This struck me in your story. You spoke to Mason Dunn, a non-binary trans right activist in Massachusetts, and he said about uh, Strangio, he marveled at his elegant ability to maintain decorum in the courtroom, even when his opponent is actively dehumanizing him to his face with their arguments. That struck me as quite the lawyer, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's uh, it's certainly something that I'm sure a lot of lawyers have been in similar positions in different ways, whether or not, you know, it's a female lawyer arguing a case about, you know, something like abortion rights or equal pay or things like that, or a black lawyer arguing a case related to racial discrimination. So certainly, I'm sure a lot of lawyers have been in similar positions. But I think because, you know, trans community doesn't have quite as much visibility to be a trans lawyer up in court, fighting over and discussing uh, very personal aspects of their existence when there is a, you know, a well-paid taxpayer finance lawyer, perhaps on the other side, saying that you're a threat to children. The fact that Chase Strangio is, is able to sort of let that roll off his back and just keep arguing, I guess people have noticed his ability to do that, because I spoke to a few plaintiffs in some of these cases we've been on that are, who are trans and sort of felt the same way, but sort of marveled at his ability to keep his cool in court during arguments. And he was involved in what was probably the greatest victory for trans rights so far, and that is the landmark Supreme Court ruling that made it illegal to discriminate against trans employees. That's right. That was a big ruling uh, in 2020 
you know, it, it interpreted existing federal law against sex discrimination to apply to transgender employees and making discrimination against trans employees uh, illegal nationwide. That was a, a huge uh, victory. There were lots of plaintiffs involved, lots of lawyers involved in that case. He was one of them, and he uh, told me he was in the Supreme Court building that day during those, those arguments and basically said you know, that that was one of the, the greatest days of his life. He said that there were a lot of trans people in the Supreme Court building that day, uh, people watching. So, yeah, clearly a big landmark victory for trans rights, but also, as he pointed out in my interview, a lot of the backlash started after that as well. Such sad ramifications for a great legal victory. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Mark Zuckerberg will not have to testify in Washington, D.C.'s data privacy lawsuit against Facebook. In fact, the judge overseeing the case called the attempt to get Zuckerberg to testify, frankly, annoying. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson, who covered this interesting hearing. Tell us what this data privacy lawsuit against Facebook is about. So the the attorney general of the District of Columbia sued Facebook uh, in 2018. It's a consumer protection lawsuit over what they did describe as a data breach involving Facebook's data that was used by Cambridge Analytica. You may remember that was that firm in the UK uh, that was used by former President Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. They were able to sort of slice and dice a lot of user data from millions of Facebook users and use it to try to uh, improve Trump's campaign outreach, you could say it. And because of the way that that data was used, it was friends of friends data, basically. And so no one had really agreed to this. 
use of their data. And uh, the DCAG says this was a violation of the district's consumer protection laws and filed a lawsuit in 2018. Why didn't they sue Zuckerberg as well? Well, I can't tell you exactly why they they didn't at first, although they have tried to uh, add him to the suit. I think that as far as a defendant goes, it was the company itself that had engaged in this alleged behavior. So I I don't think it's uncommon to uh, file a suit against a company like that without naming individual executives. That being said, that they did try to add uh, Zuckerberg to the suit. Just recently, they said that they wanted to get his deposition. They, they said that he had a decision-making role at the time period when the decisions were made to allow third-party apps to start collecting the data in this way. So they wanted to hear from him directly on that. What did the judge decide about deposing Zuckerberg? Well, he wasn't going to have it. <laughs> he shot down the attorney general's proposal pretty harshly, I would say. I listened in on, the, on this hearing in Superior Court in D.C. The judge denied the attorney general's motion to add Zuckerberg as a defendant and granted Facebook's motion for a protective order to block the attorney general from trying to depose Zuckerberg. So the judge said, look, this is a consumer protection lawsuit. This is about financial damages, basically, for consumers. The judge said, based on what he had heard, the attorney general already had plenty of information to go ahead with his case and bring the current claims that he had to trial. He was pretty critical. At some point, I would say he was shouting at the district lawyers, saying that they basically were trying to turn this case into a case about Mark Zuckerberg instead of a case about Facebook, and uh, was really critical of their attempt to, to add saying that they did not need to depose Mark Zuckerberg in order to potentially get damages from this data breach for the district consumers. But it seems like Zuckerberg is a hands-on CEO, and it would perhaps prove something or ramp up money damages. The D.C. Attorney General tweeted that allowing third-party apps like Cambridge Analytica to access user data was Mark Zuckerberg's brainchild. So to me, it seems odd that the judge wouldn't allow them to depose him. Well, I mean, I think then you'd have to get into the details of the District of Columbia's consumer protection laws and, and how judges might interpret them. You know, as you said, a lot of this decision making has been exposed and, and we're aware now of, of, of a lot of the failures that happened at Facebook through Cambridge Analytica and the decision-making behind that, and also, of course, recent whistleblower activity and testimony in Congress. So there's clearly a lot of problems that have been exposed uh, over there at Facebook. But I think the judge's point that he was trying to make is just that to prove a data breach and to prove that it occurred and to prove that residents of the district had their data misused, the judge is implying or arguing that the district can already prove that at trial and that they need to go ahead to trial with the claims that they already have. So at one point, the judge did say, look, if you find that Mark Zuckerberg did something wrong with the evidence you have, file a criminal complaint against him. He was being a little flippant, but the point he was making is, if Mark Zuckerberg did something wrong, maybe that's a different case. Maybe that's something that you can handle at a different time or another authority. But for the purposes of this lawsuit, he wanted to narrow it in. He wanted to speed it up so the case had been going on too long and that, as far as he could tell, the claims that had already been spelled out in the complaint, they seemed to already have enough evidence to take it to trial based on that. Whether or not Mark Zuckerberg personally said, do this or don't do this, 
I think the judge is saying it's irrelevant to the claim in the complaint. And we can't leave out that the judge quoted from the movie Jerry Maguire in his opinion. <laughs> like I said, he had said that for the purposes of a consumer protection complaint, it's about getting money back for consumers at the end of the day, not proving, you know, some sweeping wrongdoing by Mark Zuckerberg. So he's saying if this is about money damages, which consumer protection is, he said, you know, it's like, Jerry Maguire is, is like Cuba Gooding Jr. Show me the money. <laughs> uh, so he did mention that he likes to uh, reference pop culture in, in, in his hearings on occasion. And I love those pop culture references. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. Steve Bannon, once former President Donald Trump's chief White House strategist, is facing a rare criminal charge of contempt of Congress for refusing to testify before the House committee investigating the January 6th riots. In a two-hour hearing, Bannon won access to Department of Justice documents reflecting its official position on prosecuting current or former U.S. officials claiming immunity from congressional subpoenas on the grounds of executive privilege. But Bannon may not be able to raise an advice of counsel defense at his trial. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter and English. Bob, what is the House committee looking for from Steve Bannon? The House committee sought information from Bannon related to his activities as an outside Trump advisor after the 2020 presidential election. And they're particularly interested in conversations that Bannon allegedly had at the Willard Hotel the day before the attack when hundreds of Trump supporters protested the election's outcome and ultimately stormed the Capitol building. And so what the House committee is looking for is they want to know what was said that day. And they were particularly noting the fact that Bannon said that hell is going to break loose the following day. So they want to know what did he know, what did he say, who did he talk to on the day before the insurrection occurred. He made an argument based on Office of Legal Counsel opinions. Bannon has suggested that, that he was relying on the Justice Department's own past advice to White House aides as he fights these criminal charges. And he was particularly citing these Office of Legal Counsel opinions, which are out there. Prosecutors argue that the Justice Department's legal guidance reflected in opinions issued by the Office of Legal Counsel were not relevant to whether Bannon actually committed the contempt of Congress crimes, but the judge was not persuaded and ordered the Department of Justice to turn over any writings reflecting its official position on prosecuting current or former U.S. officials claiming immunity from congressional subpoena on grounds of executive privilege. And at one point, the judge even asked federal prosecutors, isn't there something anomalous? Isn't there something unusual for the Department of Justice to say, on the one hand, that someone has absolute immunity and that the Justice Department will not prosecute them, and then to say that those statements, those official statements of DOJ policy are not relevant to this case. So he ordered prosecutors to turn over those official statements to Bannon's defense team, and we'll see how the judge handles this issue after Bannon's lawyers get a chance to review these Office of Legal Counsel opinions. What I don't understand, Bob, is that Bannon had been fired as a presidential advisor years before January 6th. So what do those Office of Legal Counsel opinions have to do with him now as a non-presidential advisor, but an ally of the former president, 
on January 6th. I mean, it just seems like even if those opinions say senior presidential advisors are absolutely immune from compelled congressional testimony, it wouldn't apply to him anyway. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And Bannon is among a number of Trump allies who have cited executive or attorney-client privilege when refusing to cooperate with the House committee. But the other individuals were actually employed by the executive branch at the time of these communications. Bannon is in a different situation, raising legitimate executive privilege claims because he was forced to resign from the Trump White House in 2017, more than three years before the insurrection. So his argument that this executive privilege would apply to him when the conversations that he's trying to shield from the House committee were not done while he was employed by the executive branch. It's not as strong an argument and ultimately, I think, will likely fail. But the judge nevertheless ordered the Justice Department to turn over statements or writings, whether public or not, reflecting official DOJ policy on prosecuting current or former government officials who claim immunity from congressional subpoenas on the grounds of executive privilege. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The judge did say, though, that the writings have to reflect the DOJ's official position. So I think there are some documents that would not be turned over here. But prosecutors did fight vigorously to oppose turning over this information on the grounds that it will allow Bannon's defense team to probe its investigative and prosecutorial decision-making. In the eyes of prosecutors, this is something that was simply not relevant. This case boils down to simply the fact that Bannon refused to appear, and that's the issue that they posed to the judge. But the judge did give some leeway to the Bannon defense team and did order these internal documents, as you say, whether public or not, to be turned over as long as they reflect the official position of the Department of Justice on this issue. And Trump has repeatedly tried to shield from this House committee information from his time in the White House, and he has been unsuccessful each time in court. Right. And the basis for that is that the courts have ruled that the decision over whether executive a privilege would apply is one made by the current president, not the former president. So ultimately, It was President Biden's decision as to whether or not to exert executive privilege over these communications, and he decided not to do it, stated that it was in the public interest that this was provided to the House committee and declined to extend executive privilege, and the courts have upheld that and have denied former President Trump claim to executive privilege when he is no longer a, a sitting president. The Justice Department is trying to stop Bannon from arguing at his trial that he was following the advice of his attorney when he didn't comply with the subpoena. First of all, explain the import of an attorney's advice. Well, the attorney-client privilege is one of the bedrocks of the legal system in that it is important for clients to be able to communicate freely and openly with their lawyers to provide them candid information so that the lawyer can give sound advice to the client. So that is an area that courts have historically been very careful not to tread upon to invade those conversations, and that is conversations between a client who's providing information to the attorney and then the attorney providing legal advice back to the client. So courts have historically been very reluctant to pierce the privilege in areas that are considered attorney-client communications. Is it a defense that he was following his attorney's advice when his attorney told him he didn't have to comply with the subpoena? 
Well, that's a complicated question. Bannon invoked executive privilege and advised the committee that he would not comply with his, with his subpoena until a court ruled on that issue. The committee said Bannon has to comply with the portions of the subpoena not covered by any privilege, and it expected him to appear for his deposition and to produce documents and to raise any privilege issues in response to specific questions. Instead, Bannon simply refused to appear at all, refused to provide any documents at all, and ultimately he was charged with two counts of contempt of Congress, one based on his failure to appear for the deposition and the other based on his failure to produce documents. The contempt statute punishes any person who is summoned as a witness by Congress and willfully makes the fault, meaning they fail to appear, or they appear and refuse to answer all the questions. But the burden is on the government to prove that Bannon willfully failed to comply with the subpoena. And this is where the advice of counsel defense comes in, because he's arguing that he did not willfully fail to comply, that he was relying on the advice his counsel gave him, essentially, that he did not need to appear because he was immune from testimony based upon the Office of Legal Counsel opinion. But there is a federal appellate court precedent that says defendants cannot invoke their lawyer's advice as a reason to ignore a lawful congressional subpoena. Yes, that's exactly right. There's a 1961 decision by the D.C. Circuit that held that under the contempt of Congress statute, so it's very limited only to this statute, the advice of counsel defense cannot immunize a deliberate and intentional failure to appear pursuant to a lawful subpoena issued by Congress. And the reason for that is that if a witness who is summoned to appear before a congressional committee could simply rely on the advice of counsel that the information being sought by the committee was not relevant to some legislative inquiry, they could basically stonewall all congressional hearings and refuse with impunity to answer any questions based on the counsel's advice that the area of questioning is not pertinent to the legislative inquiry. So there is a 1961 court ruling that says that the advice of counsel defense cannot be raised in connection with refusing to appear before a congressional committee. And this decision forces a person to essentially choose between either complying with the court's order to provide evidence or refusing to comply, thereby risking a contempt conviction if those claims are ultimately rejected on appeal. The judge appeared ready to give prosecutors a victory on this particular point and deny Bannon the ability to use the advice of counsel during trial. But what happened to stop the judge from going forward with that? Bannon's lawyer tried to distinguish the 1961 decision by saying it was factually different. He argued that witnesses might have to appear before Congress to invoke claims such as the right against self-incrimination, but that executive privilege is different because it's a privilege that is held by the executive branch and not by the witness. The argument that seemed to resonate with the judge and at least paused the decision and, and resulted in the judge ordering both sides to further brief the issue was when Bannon's lawyer argued that in ruling that advice of counsel was not a defense that could be raised at this time would essentially give Congress a veto power over what executive privilege is and would shift the balance of powers between the president and lawmakers. It would essentially say that you have to choose between raising the choose between raising the privilege and ultimately being found to be held in contempt or rolling over essentially and providing the information. 
And in this case, because executive privilege was implicated, it would essentially strip the executive branch of the power to assert that privilege and shift the, the balance of power too far over to the congressional side. Is what happens in this case, in Bannon's case, important? Would it set a precedent for others who are refusing to appear before the January 6th committee? Well, each of the individuals who have been summoned before the committee are in a slightly different factual situation. Some were existing employees at the time. Bannon obviously was not. But it is very important here because from the Department of Justice's standpoint, you get a subpoena from a congressional committee and you simply have to appear. The only thing prosecutors believe they have to prove here is that you willfully failed to appear before the committee. Once you're in front of the committee, whether you raise certain privileges or not is a separate issue. Here, Bannon flatly refused to appear, flatly refused to produce documents, and that's ultimately why prosecutors decide to take the very unusual step and indict him for contempt of Congress. Bob, sum up for us the prosecution's case. The government here has to prove that the defendant acted with knowledge that his conduct was unlawful. The advice of defense seeks to negate that conclusion by showing that the defendant relied in good faith on counsel's advice and that the course of conduct that he took was therefore legal. The government's position is that the summoned witness doesn't get to decide if Congress can make them show up. Basically, the government argues that the contempt charge hinges simply on the question of whether or not you showed up. If the defendant makes a deliberate and intentional decision not to appear, prosecutors believe that that will satisfy the requisite intent for contempt. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.